Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, after that big sell-off yesterday, we're seeing markets rebound pretty strongly here with the, the S&P up about 1%. We had some good, very good consumer confidence data come out this morning, so that's clearly supporting the market. To get a sense of kind of where we are right now, we welcome Lisa Shallot. She's the Chief Investment Officer, Wealth Management at Morgan Stanley. They got like a gajillion dollars under management, $2.48 trillion to be more precise. Lisa, thanks so much for joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So how do you put yesterday and today kind of in context? Because folks out there driving around they're saying wow yesterday was really ugly but what's causing today's bounce back uh yeah so yesterday was very much about a classical global growth scare uh and we get these every now and then uh, and they very often lead to market sell-offs and you know the idea uh is basically that uh the nascent rebound that uh we have potentially we're beginning to see might get uh, curtailed uh, by the spread of coronavirus and and the idea uh, that the rebound that may have begun in China uh, gets stalled. And I think that that's really what the markets were obsessed with uh, yesterday. Uh, all that being said, when the dust settles and the markets, um, you know, sold off, uh, I think uh, there are a lot of investors who believe uh, rightfully that the U.S. is disconnected in many ways from the global economy, is kind of uh, uh, in oasis, uh, only 9% uh, of net GDP, of net trade uh, is related, uh, GDP is related to trade. Uh, and so in many ways, the U.S. is very much a domestic-oriented economy. And so you come into today uh, with ample liquidity, um, still extraordinary sentiment and positioning, uh, people wanting to be long this market. Uh, and you get a little piece of data that says the U.S. consumer, which is 70% of the mix, is um, still feeling good. Uh, and people are willing to say, yeah, we're going to weather this storm too. Yeah, the storm being a 1.6% decline yesterday. And today we're up uh, almost a percent. So uh, these these huge moves are, are sort of infinitesimal in a historical uh, perspective. But n- nowadays, I guess, volatility has been killed. But I, I am curious. Right now, we're seeing uh, financial conditions at all time easiest ever based on a Chicago Fed and St. Louis Fed measures uh, coming out in the past few weeks. CapEx, though, continuing to trend lower. U.S. GDP growth still only 2%. I'm trying to square the idea of relatively sluggish growth lack of wage inflation, lack of capital uh, expenditures on the part of companies with this incredibly strong job confidence and and just really low jobless rates. What am I missing? These pieces don't seem to go together. Uh, yes, they don't. Um, and so, you know, what we have very often said is, that, look, the lack of inflation in the real economy um, has completely shown up in financial asset markets. Um, we know that for the past 11 years, we've been in a pretty profound bull market. Um, where U.S. stocks have compounded at about 14%, which is two times normal. Um, We think a lot of the provision of Fed liquidity, uh, and you noted financial conditions among the easiest they've ever been, um, that uh, liquidity has found its way to financial assets uh, and been recycled not into fundamental capital spending and fundamental capital formation, but into share repurchases and a return of capital uh, to uh, to shareholders. So there's been this huge wealth transfer 
uh, and many of our clients and certainly investors in the stock markets have benefited from that. Uh, but that's where the inflation is. Um, in the real economy, uh, the real economy itself uh, has really been struggling uh, over this last decade with um, reasonably weak uh, working age population growth um, and reasonably weak productivity growth. Uh, and so we've kind of been bouncing around this 2 to 3%. Uh, and even though we have um, low unemployment, um, we have not seen wage pressures. Uh, and so as a result, um, we haven't seen the classical capital for labor substitution effects that you typically get uh, end of cycle. Uh, what we've seen is companies saying, hey, I can get away with hiring people. I don't have to really pay them anything. I don't have to give them wage increases. Um, so I'll just, you know, I'll hold them in there as long as, as the cycle holds up as good enough. And that's, we've been in this good enough. So Lisa, code. I'm looking at your tactical asset allocation uh, and in global equities underweight the U.S. but overweight emerging markets international. What's your thoughts behind that? So look, our, our thoughts there are really around relative valuation. You know, we've been in a, this period as we talked about uh, for the last 11 years where U.S. markets have profoundly outperformed um, the other regions. And as a result, we have a very, very strong U.S. dollar. Um, so as we look at relative valuations today, um, you know, we see the U.S. in, in really the top decile of PE ratios for the last uh, 100 years. It's, it's getting to be an expensive market. Um, we know that on an equity risk premium basis or adjusted for low interest rates, you know, uh, valuations are not yet extreme. But in terms of nominal PEs, um, the U.S. market is really, um, you know, getting expensive at, at nine times at 19 times forward. So our view is that as we look into 2020, the improvement in global growth that we thought was going to come both cyclically and from the trade deal, really, we think has the highest beta outside the US. We just talked about the fact that the US is kind of an isolated economy. Um, well, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, oh, global growth and global trade are going to pick up and the U.S. is going to benefit um, when you just said, hey, you know, the U.S. is its own um, story. So um, we have favored non-U.S. markets this year, basically believing that there's more operating leverage and better valuations. How long can this disconnect continue where the inflation really is in assets and not in the real economy? Um, so I think we're starting to approach um, the point of pain, and, and that's where, you know, valuations start, um, you know, begging, uh, um, you know, belief. Uh, and, and our sense is we're starting to see examples of that. Um, we think, you know, that the history books are going to reflect, um, you know, the WeWork debacle as maybe, you know, an example uh, of valuations um, becoming disconnected. And certainly a lot of folks have said, oh, no, 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 that's just an idiosyncratic situation. Uh, but we see examples of it, whether we're looking at um, uh, valuations in VC or we're looking at valuations, some of the valuations that are being paid in the private equity markets, uh, et cetera. That's fascinating. This is really, really interesting. Lisa Shalit, thank you. Apple shares up more than 2% ahead of reporting earnings after the bell today. A lot of questions about just how robust their growth has been, whether it can justify the tremendous rally that we saw last year and some of the estimates that analysts have across Wall Street. 
But I want to turn our focus uh, to what actually is going on right now and help us do that as John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And that is the effect of the coronavirus on its supply chain, which may or may not be in the front and center today uh, as they report earnings. But you think it could be potentially substantial, right? I do. I, I want to stress, I view it sort of as a near-term risk. So Bloomberg did a great piece last night on MLive blog where they talked about epidemics and the, the typical bell curve that goes with that. So uh, from beginning to peak, it's typically 10 weeks, call it two and a half months. And that's sort of the before the the number of cases begins to decline. And so my thought in reading that was that that's the risk. That's the window where Beijing could remain proactive about closing down factories, restricting travel, and in general, doing the right thing, but putting measures in place that could threaten the Apple supply chain. So looking ahead to the coming year for Apple, they reportedly are set to launch a lower cost replacement to the old iPhone SE, if you remember that. So it's a lower cost iPhone sort of positioned at the high end of the mid-price market, which is a big segment. But if you're going to launch that in March, you got to start building it in February at the latest. So in my mind, that sets up a near-term risk for them. It could lead to a push out of the introduction of that phone. And God, if this whole scenario plays out longer than that 10-week peak, then ultimately it could may even threaten the September refresh. Although to be clear, I don't see that happening. Um, I think this whole scenario with coronavirus is probably going to play out over a typical bell curve. So, uh, John, is, is Apple or any of the other technology companies that have a big presence in China, have they talked about any supply chain disruptions? They have not. And so I think a lot of people are going to be coming into tonight's Apple report and the earnings call anxious to hear something I would be amazed if they didn't address it. Already in China, if you look at the retail store base, they have limited the number of hours those stores are open across all of China. So clearly it's on Apple's mind, and they're already taking measures to address the the uh, threat of this virus. All right, so let's get to the uh, the big the big kahuna here, which is the earnings, the right? And this itself. is going to be the first $2 trillion company, right? Yeah, it's interesting. They're set up for this great year. You know, the iPhone XS, which sold throughout last year, did not really resonate well with people. And every quarter last year, they booked a double-digit decline in iPhone sales. So we have very low hurdles set up for this year, every quarter this year. And the iPhone 11 that they introduced in September of last year has done really well. Um by any measure, you know, we're hearing from third-party researchers as well as the tech community. Uh, just in general, I'm seeing a lot of it out there, a lot of iPhone 11s in, in people's hands. What I think they got so right is they introduced a new camera system. So you've got sort of a hit on yours? your hands, some new devices coming to market. 
for his There's selfies. One in Paul Sweeney's yes. he, he, he takes right a lot now, of selfies. So. He likes the filters. <laughs> yeah. He likes the multiple cameras. I looked at Tom Keene. Tom Keene posts some amazing photos on Twitter from his he iPhone 11. So he's really an aficionado. Yeah. I just point and push the little yeah, point. He, he, spends, yeah. he spends entire radio segments filming said videos. <laughs> um, you know, it is interesting, though, and it just the idea of phone cum camera. I mean, that's essentially what's happening. Cameras have become digital. Digital. I'm sorry. Today's smartphones are digital cameras with a phone app, yep. basically. <laughs> exactly. And so the phone is honestly, no. All kidding aside, is it's the most important feature on any smartphone. And I really think Apple did a lights out job with the iPhone 11, and they lowered the starting price by fifty dollars. So. It just has done very well, and I think we're going to hear that tonight, and it sets them up for a great year where you have this low bar set uh, from poor performance How important is that 5G story to Apple? A lot of bulls are out there saying this is the next major refresh cycle. I think... I think they're right, but I think it's going to play out over a longer period of time than they think. People don't upgrade immediately to the new technology, so if you look at 4G... It was sort of a multi-year ramp to the point where, uh, not saturation, penetration levels in the U.S. were really meaningful. So I think we'll see the same thing happen this year where we have a decent year of early adopters. The iPhone 5G coming out in September, I think, is going to be a popular device, but it'll take a couple of years to really get out there, so to speak. I feel like sociologists are going to look at this period of time <laughs> where it's no longer about the conversation. It's just about how you look. Right. I mean, honestly, I do think that this is going to be a transformation that people, you know, just want to see themselves and others, but they yep. don't actually want to have real banter. Con- right, exactly. And yeah, conversations I mean, have gone to texting. Yes. For the most part. Guilty. Yeah, exactly. Guilty Same as charged. Same here, by the way. Right. So. John Butler, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst, also is the ace on Apple for Bloomberg Intelligence. There is a big question right now as U.S. equities rebound after yesterday's sell-off. How will China's market respond in the wake of the closure of the Wuhan city? Uh, How how big it is, it accounts for 1.6% of the total uh, GDP of China, as well as the potential ramifications for Xi Jinping, the president of the country. Christopher Balding joining us now, associate professor at uh, Fulbright University, Vietnam, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us from Saigon in Vietnam. Christopher, could you give us just a sense, uh, first of all, of just what the response has been like on the ground where you are right now? Um, what we're basically seeing is is that even though it's a typically busy time when people are out in restaurants with families uh, enjoying uh, Chinese New Year, what we're really seeing is people staying indoors and ordering lots of food and groceries. Uh, we're actually seeing reports of uh, heavy buying in, in grocery stores um, and, and uh, cities working to make sure that they can guarantee residents that they continue to have enough food. Uh, people are stocking up, uh, but we're not seeing panic buying from, from the people I've been talking to. So it seems that uh, even though it, the impact on the economy is basically going to be, even though people might not be eating at restaurants, they seem to be making sure that they're getting a lot of food uh, and doing a lot of online shopping Elsewhere. So, Christopher, how important is it for President Xi here to get, you know, to handle this 
successfully to get it out in front of it. What's the risk for President Xi with the coronavirus? There, there's a lot of risk, and it's 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 no coincidence that uh, that uh, President uh, Lee was actually appointed to lead the working group on on this issue, uh, primarily because it's it's uh, she is uh, does not want to be seen as as in charge of this uh, debacle. Um, and I think what you're seeing inside of China right now, and everything that that you're hearing is is that there's deep frustration at at the level of competence in handling and really getting out and addressing this. Um, there was a, there was a Something that's gone viral on WeChat, a, a very important uh, event where the 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 mayor of, of Wuhan is holding uh, this uh, press conference, and he's talking about their their capacity to to make face masks, and he starts off saying, "Well, we can make 1.8 billion," and then it's like, "No, it's it's one point, uh, it's it's uh, 1.08," and then it's uh, and then it goes to an even lower number. And so I think there's this sense among the Chinese public that uh, that their their government is not nearly as competent, and there's a lot of uh, very deep frustration at the government uh, because over the years they they have a a history of not handling public health crises well, and so there's kind of this mounting frustration. I'm struggling to connect the idea that in the U.S. and elsewhere there seems to be a complacency about China's response, and there's been kind of a theme where people say, well, it's so much better than 2003 when SARS was spreading. This seems to actually be proactive. Where, where Can you explain that disconnect? Well, it's it's difficult to say because you, you you get so many conflicting responses about what the actual uh, nature of preparedness and China's ability to act. They're clearly acting. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're acting well in in solving the problem. Um, you know, there's there's videos that, and and I, I want to emphasize uh, videos that you see on things like WeChat or or other uh, social media platforms. We don't always know how accurate they are, so it's difficult to say. Well, are are they acting? You know, there's this there's this video of uh, there's China has made uh, to great fanfare that they're building a new hospital. Well, these types of con- the construction format that they're using is basically a type of reinforced uh, heavy duty plastic cardboard, uh, and they use these on Chinese construction sites. And so <clears throat> it's not really like a quality construction. There's not going to be air filtering and sanitation standards and things like that. But they've clearly gone to the trouble of building something that they can put people in. So it's very, very difficult to disentangle what is actually helping uh, with regards to what China is doing and what is just action for the sake of appearing busy. Christopher, is it worthwhile making the analogy to SARS as it relates to the potential impact on the Chinese economy, which was material at the time? Um, I think it's still, in a way, very early, too early to, to say with, uh, with significance. I think the first crack that we've really seen in how big an impact uh, it's going to have on the economy is China has announced that uh, they're actually pushing back the return to, uh, return to work date by one week at the moment. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that flips another uh, week or two. Um, so I think it's still really too early to, to start making solid comparisons to SARS or really anything else because this is just so unprecedented at the moment. There's also an idea that Wuhan is a very big city, but it only accounts for 1.6% of uh, China's entire GDP. Is the potential impact on the economy much greater based on Wuhan's role in terms of a node of transportation and manufacturing and a part of, of supply chains of companies both locally and internationally? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's 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 kind of like right in the middle, uh, in the center of China. Uh, it's it's a big rail hub, lots of manufacturing, and so what you've really seen is you've seen these, you know, as people leave. And so when when this happened right as people were leaving for Chinese New Year, and so on on some days there were estimates that more than a million people uh, were leaving the city of Wuhan in in a specific day. And if you've ever been in a city, a major Chinese city during Chinese New Year, you can have these cities that, you know, of, of 15 million people that will literally, you know, 50% of the population will leave. Um, that, that's, not, that's not a crazy number. And imagine if Manhattan was suddenly 50% smaller by population um, and dispersed all over the eastern seaboard. That's kind of what we're talking about with Wuhan. And so all of a sudden, the risk that that virus gets transported all over the eastern seaboard, or in this case, all over China, is is much, much greater and a very real possibility. Christopher, you're on the ground in Saigon in Vietnam right now. What's the feeling there? Um, there's absolutely lots of precautions being taken. I was actually at a health facility today on an, on an unrelated matter, um, and they had actually set up a tent outside uh, the facility where they were checking people. Everybody was uh, given a mask, and it was mandatory. Um, there was, of course, all types of uh, all nature of sanitation um, available to people around. Um, they're absolutely tracking uh, any travelers that have been to China recently. Um, it's absolutely a lot of concern, but I think they're, they're absolutely uh, on top of things and, and tracking people that need to be tracked. Christopher Balding, thanks so much for that on-the-ground uh, commentary. We really appreciate it. Chris Balding, Associate Professor of Fulbright University in uh, Saigon, Vietnam. He's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. look at the coronavirus and how it relates to the global energy markets. We saw a sell-off uh, in oil over the last uh, several sessions and really off from uh, the peak of early January here. WTI today, uh, just to quote that, that's actually staging a little bit of a rebound today, up about 1%. Uh, to get a sense of kind of global oil markets and the drivers on the supply and demand side, we welcome uh, John Kildoff, founding partner of Again Capital. So John, how are you thinking about global oil markets given some of these issues as it relates to the coronavirus, as well as some other geopolitical issues globally? Well, on the demand side of the equation right now, there's just a tremendous fragility as a result of this uh, outbreak of, of the coronavirus. Um, you know, a lot of us were dusting off the uh, charts from 2003 when the SARS epidemic hit, and oil took quite a hit then. Oil prices were basically just about cut in half um, from about $38 a barrel down to almost uh, 25 So uh, quite a bit of a sell-off because, you know, when I talk to you guys about the uh, the price dynamic, it's always Asia, 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 and, and China in particular. Um, you know, there was had been some hope that they would be getting back on their feet economically after the uh, at least the partial resolution of the U.S.-China trade war, and now this hits and it's just uh, you know skewing um, the demand growth back to down to flat, if not down, on the year. Because this is still early days, if you ask me. I don't quite understand the rush to uh, say the all clear has been sounded here. What we're seeing in the stock market today, and uh, and even oil to a degree, we got a long way to go on this. You know, I, I want to pick up on that because we are seeing a rally in equities, almost completely erasing yesterday's declines at this point, if it continues throughout the day. But oil 
it's just flat. I mean, essentially, I mean, it's it's a little up. We're not seeing that big of a price gain. What's going to tip the scales one way or another? I mean, it's a 1%, but still, after uh, losing, what, more than $10 uh, in the past month, this is this is not um, massive. What will tip the scales one way or another in order to determine whether there's another substantial leg lower in the price of oil? Yeah, and then, Lisa, if you think about it, we've actually retraced 100% or so of the low, of the gains from the October lows that got it, that we saw. We got as high as uh, $65 on the on the in, most intense Iran fears. Um, what's going to tip us to the downside here is if uh, it, is that we don't get another further response out of uh, OPEC and Russia. Uh, they've already been on the wires. That this has gotten their attention. I can tell you that uh, they've been talking about it already about potentially extending their current deal to June at least. They're going to have to go longer than that, and they're going to have to cut more if they want to uh, support this price. The big line in the sand, the first line in the sand here, and we saw it yesterday get tested, was down around 52.13 was the low. But really, $50 if you go back several years, that has been the number that has held up. Um, there's a tendency to think it'll hold up again because you will get a response from some of the producers. But if we break that, then you're, you're looking at significant uh, more downside to the low 40s uh, in pretty rapid fashion. So, Jeff, what's the thinking as it relates to OPEC and relates to the supply side of the equation? Is there a growing determination to support uh, global oil prices or we just don't have that coordination within OPEC and OPEC plus? You know, it's, it's aspirational on their part, I can tell you that, uh, particularly the Saudis who, uh, you, know, you know, finally got that Aramco IPO out the door. Uh, they've been watching that stock price uh, come down as the price of oil comes down. So I just want to remind people, if you're looking to buy into that at some point or in some shape, way, shape or form, uh, you've got a tremendous exposure to the crude oil commodity. So be careful with that. There's no silver bullet there with that company. And um, so they're, they're going to try. I mean, they, they were on the wires all weekend uh, making noise about, about addressing this, this slide and even actually like chastising the analyst community for being overreactive and, and too aggressive on the, uh, on, the, on the demand outlook cuts, which, which is impacting the price. So I thought that was an interesting thing on their part that shows you how in, in, engaged they are uh, with the price of the commodity these days. So, but there's a sense in the market that it's just beyond their grasp. There's too much U.S. oil. There's too much U.S. exports. And there's even more oil coming on from different spots uh, that's also helping to uh, keep these global markets rather well supplied. John Kilduff, thank you so much for the perspective. John Kilduff is uh, the founding partner of Again Capital. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.